So the title of today's message is No Condemnation. And we're going to be focusing on Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 today. Um, usually we would have a reader, but since it's a shorter one, I decided to do it myself. That And this, these verses mean a lot to me. Is God, these are the verses that were instrumental in God bringing me in to the gospel. So I just elected to, to, bring, to read this myself. So, I grew up in a kind of unique situation. Most of you know I had a pretty chaotic upbringing. I had a, a broken home. Parents separated it when I was five, divorced at ten, and there was a whole bunch of drama in that. Really horrible fights between my mom and dad and, and being tossed back and forth between parents. And, and being a smaller kid, I'm still short, I'm only 5'6", so I'm still on the short side of being a man. And I was rather poor. I was teased a lot at school and picked on and bullied and everything. And it made me very shy and introverted and not, just not one of the cool kids. So I grew up, you know, watching the kids who had more money, watching the kids who were more popular. And I just kind of had the sneaking suspicion in my own life that God didn't like me very much that he liked them better, he gave them a better life. And I, I, that's just kind of what I, the way I was thinking when I was growing up. And I would go to church. We would go to a, the Lutheran church a few times a month. And I kept hearing about how God loves everyone, but I never really believed that message. I thought maybe it applied to everyone else but me. As most of you know, I went to Lutheran confirmation. I was actually confirmed at the age of 15, even though I skipped most of the classes. I guess they showed me the first grace I'd ever seen in my life and the fact that they um, confirmed me anyway. Um, but because I had gone through some of the classes, I knew some of the basic Christian teaching, and I knew a few basic principles. The first principle that I knew and that was preached on most often is that God is holy. And because he is holy, he absolutely hates sin. The pr second principle is that sinners and those who sin go to hell. I knew that. Again, we had a pastor that preached that a lot. Sinners go to hell. And because of the first two principles I heard at church, I developed a, a third principle in my own head, kind of in the back of my mind. never really, really thought it out. But the third principle I had is, well, I'm a sinner, and I'm probably going to hell. And there's nothing I can really do about it. And that's about how far my understanding of God went. Is, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm going to go to hell, and so a good portion of my younger years, I embraced the same lifestyle I grew up in. Partying, living only for the moment. The furthest I would look into the future is next Friday when we could have another party. And I would work so I could fund the next party. That was all my life was about. Then due to a flood of negative circumstances, when I turned 18, I enlisted in the military. At reception station, right before you go into basic training, you land there and you get all your shots and your uniforms and everything else. And one of the things they issued us in 1988, and I don't know if they do this anymore, but they issued me a New Testament Bible with songs and proverbs. Most of us have seen April shaking her head. Nope, not anymore. <laughs> but that was actually part of our issue. They actually gave us a Bible. 
And in basic training, the only thing you are allowed to read in basic training is your field manual that contains all the stuff you need to know for basic training and your Bible. Those are the only two things you could read. Well, you can only read how to dig a foxhole for so long where you have to read something else. And I am a reader. I love to read. If I can't read, I go crazy. And so the only other thing I had to read was the Bible. So I read the Bible. I read the Gospels. I read the Proverbs. I love the Proverbs because it was common sense wisdom kind of stuff. But I was really confused about the teaching of Jesus. On one hand, he seemed to say that no one could ever qualify to go to heaven. Even the most religious among us. He said not even the scribes and the Pharisees will ever go to heaven. And I equated that. I had no idea what a scribe or a Pharisee was. I just said, well, that must mean like pastor or priest or all that. And they're not going to go to heaven, so no one's going to heaven. Got it. On the other hand, Jesus seemed to also talk a lot about God's love and forgiveness. And that God loved us so much that Jesus had to die for us. But in my unregenerate, not Holy Spirit-filled mind, I could not bring those two thoughts together. I could not understand really what I was reading. And I knew Jesus went to the cross for me, but I didn't understand why. And this lack of understanding came from the same two places in my life that it comes from in our society today. The first thing I didn't understand from the Bible, because I... It's because I never saw this growing up as I never understood the idea of respect for authority. Most of the authority figures in my life, with the exception of my grandfather, I had zero respect for. I never learned respect for authority. Even though the military was doing a great job pounding that into my head at the moment. I'll tell you what, if, if push-ups can move a state on the map, Georgia would be down in southern Florida right now. I did so many push-ups and basic training. I mean, at Fort Benning, we were, I was pushing that pavement a whole lot because I didn't know respect for authority. And that kind of carried over into my ideas about God. I saw God as a deeply capricious entity, more like a Roman god Jupiter or Zeus um, wanting to toss lightning bolts at people for any violation of his moral commands. The second thing that kept me from an understanding, uh, from understanding the Bible is a serious lack of respect for the rule of law. I didn't see rules and laws as absolutes. I saw them as challenges. I would, if I saw a fence telling me that I can't trespass here, I would just climb the fence. If I went back the next week and they had barbed wire across the top so I couldn't climb the fence, I'd throw a jacket over the top of the barbed wire and climb it anyway. I saw that kind of stuff as a challenge, not as something that actually should be obeyed. And because I, I grew up with those ideas and attitudes, the ideas of justice or law, substitutionary atonement, or even that I was worthy of punishment were foreign to me. After I went into the reserves and I worked at a factory on an assembly line, and this, this is God, the assembly line was run by a Christian studying to be a pastor. The people I was on the left and right of me, on the right of me, was Kevin Robinson, who you guys have met. He's preached here several years ago. He has a church now in uh, eastern Wisconsin. He moved back to Wisconsin. Has a church over there. And the other woman over here was the wife of a pastor. 
So I had a boss who's a pastor, who's studying to be a pastor, Kevin, who was studying to be a pastor, and a wife of a pastor for 10 hours a day, six days a week, constantly talking to me. I think God wanted me. I don't know. God wanted to break through to me. But I really wasn't interested. I mocked them a lot, caused a lot of frustration. I would deliberately say swear words just to make them uncomfortable. I just wasn't interested. I had already read the Bible, already knew its message. I was doomed to hell, so I might as well enjoy life while it lasted. And that's kind of how most people I talk to today are, isn't it? Even when I talk to my coworkers at the hospital or on the fire department or anywhere else, they have the opinion, well, I'm doomed anyway. I might as well enjoy life while I can. They don't understand the gospel. That's, that's the message that Satan wants to put in the hearts and minds of people today. But then somebody showed me the verse that we're going to read this morning. It began my journey toward really understanding the cross of Christ and all of what it could mean to me personally and all those who, could, who will choose to kneel before the Savior and ask for forgiveness. So the scripture we're going to be reading today is Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Those who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, for the book of Romans. I thank you, Father, for the truth. And I thank you for these verses, Lord, which are instrumental in bringing me into the faith. I was able to finally make those connections. And I ask, Father, that you use it to encourage us this morning. You ask that you use it to equip us so that we are able to give an answer for the hope that we have in you. Lord God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this scripture. Whenever I read of it, even when I was, when I was outlining and, and preparing this message, it caused a lot of emotion within me. Believe it or not, I, I have emotion. I, I do even cry sometimes. Because it's the entire gospel condensed in a few verses. So we're going to take a few more minutes this morning to dissect exactly what Paul is saying to us here and why it's so important for us not only to live this, but to proclaim it to everyone we know so that we, they can have the same chance to come in to saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus. So we're going to put this in order to understand how we present it. And the first principle that we need to know is that condemnation comes from the law. Let's give an example this morning. Let's say you're driving home from church. And unless, unless you're like me or, or a few other people here that live only a few blocks from the church, let's say you have to travel outside of town. You're listening to your favorite music. You're talking about seeing people at church. 
and all of a sudden you see flashing blue lights in your rearview mirror. It's the sheriff's department, and they seem to be pulling you over. So you pull over to the right, and, and sheriff's deputy gets out of their car with their ticket book. Walk up to your car, roll down the window, license and registration. You ask, officer, why are you pulling me over? I'm going to pull you, I'm pulling you over this morning because I hate the color of your car. I'm going to impound your car right now because I hate the color. Right now, get out of your car, you can walk. Now, can that happen? No, that, not yet, anyway, in America. Who knows <laughs> what's coming, but not yet in America because there's no law against having your car be a certain color yet. Right? There's no, he has no authority to bring condemnation upon you because you have, say, a red car. But now, if he comes over and he said, well, I don't know if you noticed, but back there, let's say you're coming down into Whitehall here um, from Pigeon Falls, and you pass Coral City, get the Highway D, right there, speed limit sign, drops to 45. Hit the bridge, drops to 30. Now, when, you, when I come into town, back into town on Tuesdays and Saturday mornings, I'm usually around 5, 30, 6 o'clock when I'm pulling back into town in the morning, Police officers always sitting right behind the root beer stand right there, taking radar. So if you don't hit, if, if you miss that, and you come into town, blazing into town at 45, guess what? You're going to get a ticket. You're going to have an up-close conversation with Chief Schaffner or Paul, and they're going to issue a ticket because now they have a legal right to give you condemnation in the form of a ticket saying you are guilty of speeding. You are in violation of the law, and you have to pay the penalty. But that's what Jesus did for us. He paid the penalty when he took that sin. He took that condemnation of guilt, and he paid the fine for us. And that raises the next question. Why did Jesus have to do that? See, this is my sticking point in the Bible. People would tell me that Jesus died for me, for my sin, and I'm like, why? Why? you got to remember, I had no respect for authority, no respect for the rule of law. I was, I was just, I, I considered that the rules didn't really apply to me. And I was just smart enough to, to keep myself out of most legal trouble. So, I mean, sooner or later it would have caught up to me. And so my thought was, why didn't God just forgive us? My attitude was, I mean, you guys keep preaching all this stuff at me. And, and I was just like, come on, God, relax a little. We're only human. We make mistakes. He made us like this and he yelled at us for making mistakes. Why? 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 You know, obviously this, this Bible stuff isn't true. So why did Jesus have to be the one to take the condemnation? We refer a lot back to Genesis 3. God creates Adam and Eve, gives them one simple rule. You know, when people tell me I'd be a Christian if I didn't have to obey all these rules, I'm like, well, you couldn't even obey one. <laughs> Humanity couldn't even obey one in the beginning. So it isn't a rule issue, it's a rebellion issue. Well, God gave them that rule, that they can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they do, they will die. So he gives them the rule, and he gives them the consequence, the condemnation. One of the missing ideas in my mind, why it didn't make sense, is I didn't realize 
that God is perfect in his moral character. Absolutely perfect, without flaw, without blemish, without changing his mind, without lying. So, because if he lies or changes his mind, even those times in the Bible where it seems like he, he relents or changes his mind, it still came to pass when you read it. So if he, if all this, I didn't understand his perfection in his moral character. So he cannot just turn around and forgive Adam and Eve. He said, the day you eat of it, you will die. And spiritually, that's exactly what happened. We all know they broke that rule. And as the first person, humans on the planet, they condemned the rest of their descendants to be infected with the same genetic and spiritual predisposition to rebel against God that they had. But, instead of immediately taking their lives, God takes the life of an animal. Remember, they said that they were naked, so God slays an animal and clothes them with the skin of the animal. I think it was probably a lamb. I can't defend that by the Bible, but it would make sense to me anyway. And he immediately takes that dead skin to punish their nakedness. So the animal took the punishment for the condemnation they deserved. Up until then, they had been innocent. And that's how God interacted with them, as people who are innocent. And the rest of the Bible tells us of God's plan to bring us back to that position of innocence, to restore the Garden of Eden and him walking among us in the, in the cool of the day where he was able to dwell intimately with us. When you go to the end of the Bible, you read about the new heaven and new earth, really what that is, it's Eden 2.0. It's him restoring what his initial um, idea and initial plan was for creation. To show God's ways of bringing us back to that point, we use a system to understand the Bible. It's called dispensationalism. It's one of the ways that we divide up the Bible and make it understandable of why God does what he does in various points of biblical history. That's actually, most of Genesis is, is divided up into several different dispositions. And they're not, it's not a perfect system. I know there's, there's not a lot of theology um, nerds that are here or listen to me because everybody would be like, wait a minute, no, I believe in covenantal theology. No. I'm not going to debate that this morning, but it does do a, a decent job in bringing us into greater understanding. In this case, humanity went from a disposition of innocence in the way that we deal with God. And after the fall began a disposition of conscience. In other words, God said, you live according to the God-given God conscience that I have given you, and you live according to that, you should be okay. And God really, in my opinion, looking back on this now, I think God was just destroying the arguments we would make today. Because people would say today, well, as long as we live by our conscience, we're fine. We saw where conscience led them. Into such depravity that God had to wipe out everybody except Noah and his family. The dispensation of consciousness, the condemnation came through the flood. God then institutes the dispensation of human government and gives humanity the right, through government, to enact punishment for crime. 
And the condemnation there came through either a government or ruler stating you broke a law and therefore you have to pay a price or die because you did that. Human government, though, failed in that they refused to obey God's command to spread out on the earth. God told Noah he wants everyone to spread out, subdue the earth, fulfill his initial requirement for man and in humanity, and spread out upon the earth, but they didn't. They congregated in one spot, built the Tower of Babel. Then what happened? Confuses the languages. He makes them spread out. And by the way, mouth gets really dry when you hear one of these. Um, <laughs> by the way, the Tower of Babel explains the races in humanity. I hate using the word race because we're all one race, but the different ancestries. Um, it, the Tower of Babel completely explains that because if God has all the, the Caucasian-looking people, white people, if you want to use that kind of terminology, they went north and west from Babel. That would have been somewhere in Iraq. Um, People with what's called a Mongolian eye fold or narrow eyes, they went to the east. They became the Asian people. Some of them crossed their land bridge, became Native Americans and South Americans and all that. Darker-skinned people went south into Africa. So it explains where the different races came from. I don't think God totally messed up the languages to the point where you had like a white person speaking the same language as a black person, as an Asian person, and all that. I think he clumped them together so they had that same familiarity within their groups and then spread them out. That's just my opinion. A little aside. So we, we know how um, that turned out. They, God spread them out. Then came the dispensation of the promise with Abraham. The chosen people lived by the promise that God would bring them into a land and that they, this land would be theirs and he would be their God and they would be safe within this land. The condemnation came because the people doubted the promise. This lasted all the way through up until the time that Moses brought them into the desert. And the condemnation of this came when the ten of the twelve spies bring a bad report to the nation of Israel. They're in the desert Moses sends out 12 spies to spy out the promised land to get ready to go and conquer it. Ten of the spies come back, give a bad report. The people believe the ten bad spies. And so God has them wander in the wilderness until they all die. That was their condemnation. God then institutes, through Moses, the dispensation of the law, which is the way that God was interacting with humanity all the way through Jesus. Under the law, animals had to die for the sins of humanity. All the dispensations pointed to one thing, and that is the utter impossibility of humanity to fix the problem of their sin nature. When I said a few minutes ago that I think God led us through all those dispensations in history to point out to us even today that there is no possible way, no matter what system you set up here on earth to try to gain your way to heaven, it's impossible. And that is why Jesus had to come. God gave us conscience, we blew it. God gave us human uh, government, we blew it. Does anybody in 2020 America right now think that government can solve anything? My favorite quote from Ronald Reagan is, the most dangerous phrase he knows is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. 
Generally, government makes things worse. I think we're all too cynical now to hold on to promises. Or how about law? Does anybody think that we can get to God by following the rules? If so, I would invite you to visit Portland, Seattle, or even Minneapolis a lot of the times. You'll see what people think about the law. So we're left with no hope in ourselves. So we have to go back to the beginning. With Adam and Eve, God placed into practice this idea of substitutionary atonement. And what that is, it sounds like a big theological word that's going to make you fall asleep any second. But it's important for us to understand that something else took your deserved punishment and condemnation. In the case of Adam and Eve, God put it on that animal. In the case of Moses, they put it on many animals. And in the case of us as Christians, God put it on Jesus. Now, with substitutionary atonement, we have to, and why this is important, and why we can't just keep sacrificing animals, is there are two things with this. Number one, this animal had to be perfect. If you're going to sacrifice it to God, you can't take the the ram in your flock that was born with three legs and sacrifice that. God wanted the absolute very best perfect animal to be the sacrifice because he's God and he is worthy of the best. So we would continue to do that. But the problem with substitutionary atonement when it came to these animals is this. In Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4 it says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. And verse 4 says it very plainly for us. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? Why couldn't God just be pleased with that? Because the animal didn't commit the sin. Animals had nothing to do with it. A human commits sin. And therefore, if we want to be really cleansed and healed from our sin and our sin nature, a human being has to take that punishment. And the problem we have with that is, is that no human has ever lived a sinless life. They were not perfect, and therefore they could not take and be that sacrifice. Every one of us have moral blemishes, condemnation, and guilt. We can't even cover our own sin, much less other people's sin. That, and we're mortal. We're, we're mortal. We can't take upon ourselves sin for other people. We are not God. We, can, we can't even pay for our own sin, much less everyone else. And mankind went through history with this same problem, that they were continually doing all these sacrifices and it was really a band-aid over a, an amputation. It was going to kill them sooner or later. And the band-aid just made it look good. That is, until Jesus. 
And Jesus answered that question I struggled with my whole life up until I was 23. Why did he have to die for me? Why was it Jesus that had to come? Because he was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was born as a human being, just as human as you and I are right now sitting here. One of the great things I love about the, the movie or the shows that we're watching, The Chosen, is they show that human side of Jesus. There have been great movies that, that portray the life of Jesus, but many of them, they, they kind of have them somber, and he speaks in a deep voice and proclaims truth. And you see him as God. You see him as, as the God side, but you never really get to see him that he was actually human. As a matter of fact, in one of the episodes, it showed him dressing like a blister on his finger. That he just didn't go be healed and have it be healed. But he actually experienced those kind of, of human limitations. He allowed himself to do that. He was completely able to identify with the guilty. He was subject to the same trials, temptations, and sufferings as we are. I think Jesus might have even gotten colds. Jesus would be sitting here wearing a mask today for the coronavirus if he was here today. But he lived without ever failing and earning his own condemnation. He never failed, lived completely holy before God. The second reason that it had to be Jesus is because he is God. Only an infinite being could take upon himself all of the sin of the entire creation upon himself. Jesus solved the problem of human sin. Jesus accomplished the plan and purpose of God, of God that he restored what was lost in the Garden of Eden. God living within us and upon us through the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John Piper, great Bible teacher, puts it this way. He said, justification, justification means to take away condemnation, take away guilt, make you holy. Justification is an act of God and not man. It is a divine decision to acquit the guilty, to give all the benefits of the children of God to us who deserve hell. It is based on a transaction that happens outside of ourselves, namely the death of Jesus Christ in our place. And that is why we follow Jesus. That is why we worship Jesus. That is why Jesus is our God. So how do we apply this to our lives? Number one, you just accept Him as Lord, God, Savior, and King. Say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. As Paul said, I am the greatest of sinners. And I know I need you, Jesus, because I have no hope otherwise of ever seeing you in heaven. I surrender to you, become my Lord, my God, my Savior, and my King, and forgive me of all of my sins, Lord. I commit my life to you. Just surrender to Him. Paul talks a little bit about the law of the Spirit of life. And that's what we're going to go into depth about next week. But just quick thoughts on this as we prepare to close. When we say law, we think of a, of a 
A rule meant to restrain bad behavior. And really, that's what a law is. In this case, the law we're talking about here is meant to be liberating to us. It's kind of like if I knew you were going to drive down to Chicago right now and you're going to visit somebody down near where the Robert Taylor homes used to be, south side, one of the most violent places in America, and I said, I don't want you to ever drive down a dark alley at night. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you as your pastor, you can't do that. Now, would you look at me and say, well, you're just being restrictive? Or would you say, well, you're probably trying to protect me? That's the law of the spirit of life. In the same way, the law of the Spirit keeps you close to God so that you don't walk into those dark alleys of sin anymore. The fences that God put up are meant to keep you safe in His yard instead of wandering into Satan's. Paul describes it this way in Galatians. Galatians 5.16, reading from the New Living Translation, it says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you will know you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. And that's a good word for us this morning. Hold on to your Father's hand as you go through this life. And He's going to keep you safe until you see Him again face to face. That's the law of the Spirit. That is what Jesus meant to restore for us when He said there is now no condemnation, is that we can now reach up without fear Take our Father's hand and walk through this life. Amen?